Grace and peace to each and every one of you. It's Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Corps here in Grass Valley, California, bringing you our worship in study time online. And you are always welcome to join us in person. We have meetings here in Grass Valley at our Alta Street location every Sunday morning, 11 a.m., and we would love to see you face-to-face. But thank you for being here online. Uh, grace and peace to each and every one of you. I think I said that already, but you know what? We all need a little more grace and peace. Let's uh, get it right into our story today. The situation in Jerusalem was turbulent and uncertain. Since Herod Agrippa had died almost 15 years earlier, a series of Roman proconsuls had ruled Judea with varying degrees of competence, mostly bad. Now, where Agrippa had made some effort to appease his people, the proconsuls had mostly treated them as the subject nation that they were. The Herods were horrible and evil, but at least they had some connection to the Jewish people, and they inspired a certain nationalism. The Roman governors tended to be corrupt and interested mostly in keeping the peace well enough that they could get a better posting. Ironically, the poor government by Rome in these years brought its own wave of Jewish nationalism. People who were thought to be collaborating with the Romans or any other Gentiles were at risk of being shunned, abused, or even killed for daring to associate with those people, those outsiders, those who were obviously the enemy. As far as most of Jerusalem was concerned, you needed to be able to establish yourself as being Jewish, or you were one of them instead of one of us. Now, for the followers of the way of Jesus in Jerusalem, this was not usually kind of any kind of a problem, because Jesus and most of his followers in this area were Jewish, and they kept the law of the Old Covenant. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was Jesus' next oldest brother, and he was known as a devout Jew. He was so faithful that he was known as Old Camel Knees because of how much time he spent in prayer in the temple. There were a lot of people, though, who would have done away with him if they could, but his opponents couldn't find any fault in his behavior or practices. And as we'll see in a moment, and as we've seen many times in many other places, the same is far from true about Paul. Finding uh, ways to accuse or attack Paul were apparently pretty easy. Now, we're reading from uh, the uh, New Testament, the New International Version, the 2011 edition. Uh, that has been our practice while we've been working through the book of Acts. So grab your Bible, turn to chapter 21 so you can follow along. If you have a different translation, your words may be different, but the meaning behind them should still be the same. And uh, for those of you who are interested... Uh, we do still have our Acts journals available, and all you need to do is give me a shout, and I'll get one into your hands. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. Hopefully I've given you time to get there. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, the ministry here in Jerusalem has been almost entirely to people of Jewish background, since that's what the population of the city was. Christianity was, and is, a sect of Judaism. 
uh, it's one that says the promises of God through the prophets were fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who was and is the Messiah, God's promised King of Kings, who came to fulfill the old covenant and establish a new one, which is for all people. All right. Now, as you might imagine, this is not the most popular message among people who have strongly turned to nationalism. And there's been a recurring argument about what it means for a Gentile to come to faith. For those who do not believe in the message or resurrection of Jesus, outsiders are only welcome after a lengthy and carefully evaluated series of steps, which are completed as part of their conversion to Judaism. Remember, uh, every... Every group in the world breaks people down to the us and the them. And so for the Jewish folks in the first century, there were the Jews and the Gentiles, the us and the them. For the, the Greeks, it was the Greeks and the barbarians. Yeah, it's, it's always us and them. <clears throat> Among the believers, it isn't necessarily that they disagree that everyone can turn to Jesus and be saved. Almost everyone among the believers believed that, if not everyone, because it was part of Jesus's message. Now, usually what they're arguing about, what they're disagreeing about is the way that the followers are to live. Do they follow the law of Moses? If they don't, how can we know they're part of God's people? For example, circumcision has been this mark of being part of the family of God since the days of Abraham. So for almost 2,000 years, people who were part of God's family, part of God's people, part of God's nation, uh, they had followed this distinctive and required step um, in the life of a, a Jewish baby boy, you know, beyond day eight. And this was, uh, if you were an adult converting to Judaism, this was required as one of the final steps of that conversion. And many of the followers were teaching that it wasn't necessary for Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus to be circumcised. Which, you know, suddenly this thing that has been this mark, this hallmark of who you are and how you know that someone's in the family, there are people saying it doesn't matter. And it wasn't a secret who was or who wasn't circumcised. They didn't have stall doors or an obsessive need for restroom privacy back then. Good heavens, we didn't even have that when I was a kid. Men at the men's room and public men's rooms just lined up at a trough. Now, when you hung out with people, they were going to see you hike up your robe when you went to pee. It's not that folks were on the lookout for who was cut and who wasn't, but they were going to notice. And this was only one of hundreds of commands that were essential to being a practicing Jew. Could a bacon-eating Gentile do life alongside a pork-free Jew? Is there a conflict there? To those who grew up in a culture where you could become ritually unclean by speaking to someone who was unclean? This idea that different kinds of people could mix freely was uncomfortable at best. And it really is possible for reasonable people to disagree about some things. It really is. So how you work out these differences when they come up, that matters. And and how do you seek to, to reach out to people about these things? Now, as you might expect... Considering how much I've just built up the question, 
This is exactly what Paul and his team are finding themselves walking into in Jerusalem. And he started, Paul started, by going to the leaders and sharing with them all the ways that the faith has grown, how tens of thousands of people have repented and turned to Jesus, and all of the evidence of God's Spirit working in the populations of non-Jews in the areas which Israelites had always considered to be unclean was a, was a thing. It was part of his, his show and tell, as it were. And Acts 21 verse 20 says, when the leaders heard this, they praised God. And then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. So, uh, in essence, they're like, Paul, what you're telling us, that's great. We love that. And you know what? Things here are going great too. And those who are joining us here are every much uh, the same uh, group of believers who really believe in the old ways. So those who believe here, uh, the Jews who are coming to faith here, they are rededicating themselves to the laws of Moses as part of following Jesus. Hmm. <clears throat> now, a lot of that is because of the culture that they were in. In this city, there'd been one res insurrection. <coughs> Excuse me. There'd been one insurrection after another, and they've risen up over these past few years, just like one after another. And each one has been brutally put down by the Roman governors, particularly in the last few years by Felix. Felix was the governor, and he was... Vicious. If people got out of line, he uh, enforced Pax Romana, which is the, the peace of Rome, where uh, the peace of Rome was, if you rise up against us, we're going to kill you and your entire family so that everyone knows they need to stay at peace in Rome. And uh, he, he was, like I said, he was good at that. Now, politically, politically, the attitude of the people here in Jerusalem has shifted away from any contact with the Gentile world. The people were pro-Jew and anti-everyone else. I mean, not everyone was, to be sure, but enough of the population was to make this region a dangerous one to be in. And Paul has just come into Jerusalem with a whole slew of Gentiles who must have seemed like a big challenge to the survival of the ethnic and cultural norms of the Jewish faithful. I mean, who's Paul bringing in? What's he bringing them in for? Why is he saying they should be accepted in the religious life of a city full of people for whom religious life was the only life? And the Jerusalem leaders of the way, honestly, they seem thrilled to hear the good news of Jesus is changing the world. Yes, they are totally behind that, but there is some hesitancy in their response because the arrival of this particular group that Paul is leading is going to create some political problems among their own people and the others in Jerusalem. Now, the fact that Paul's bringing an offering from the Gentile churches isn't going to soothe that kind of tension. In fact, quite the contrary, it could actually be seen as trying to influence them, which in a way it was. So the leadership is now, they're kind of in a bind. They're thrilled at the success of the faith among the Gentiles, but Paul being here at this time, this place, that's a huge liability to their mission to share the gospel with the Jewish people. 
Paul's mission to the Gentiles is only likely to stir up prejudice and the blind xenophobia uh, because of the things that people in Jerusalem have heard about Paul's work. They're, they're pretty inflammatory. Look, Acts 21, verses 21 to 24, the leaders told him, Look, they've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Uh, what shall we do? They'll certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Hmm. Well, is there any truth to the accusations being leveled at Paul's teaching? Well, maybe. It seems likely that some of the Jewish converts out in those outer Gentile realms joining in churches that were mostly made up of Gentile followers, those Jewish converts may have become less Torah observant as part of that conversion. And Paul's own teaching certainly could lead to this kind of conclusion. A year or so before this time that he got to Jerusalem, he'd sent out the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It had probably been circulated pretty widely by this point. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that's how we designate it for him. It was just a letter. But for us, we've got it broken into chapters, so it's easy to find things. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he says something to the effect of, Among Jews, I am a faithful Jew, and among those without the law, I'm like one without the law, so that I can win more converts. Now, sure, he goes on to say that he's always under God's law through Christ, but his opponents probably had stopped listening by then. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul doesn't seem to have ever advocated for Jews to act in any way other than as Jews. And we've seen that he observed Jewish purity rites and he participated in religious festivals and all that. Instead, he seems to have been very much in favor of people observing the practices of their faith as tools to remind them that they're connected to God. He just wanted them to remember that salvation is through Christ, not by anything else. Right? Now, to try to make it clear that Paul was not the apostate monster he was being made out to be, the elders asked him to just do this little thing for them. Uh, apostate, by the way. That means uh, someone who's given up or rejected their religious beliefs or principles. I know it's a, one of those church words never shows up anywhere else, so it, it's one most people are not familiar with. Now, what uh, what the leaders here in Jerusalem want him to do, what they want Paul to do, is to support four of the believers who are about to complete a traditional Jewish vow. And there were expensive sacrifices involved, so that would really buy him some respect from the, we need to see that you're serious about this crowd. And when these four are going through their pre-final uh, vow purification rituals, because there was a purification that had to happen before the ending of the vow. I'm not, I don't want to get into all that. Uh, 
So these four need to go through all that. And the elders want Paul to complete his own purification ritual. There was a traditional seven-day set of practices that were used to cleanse yourself from having been traveling in foreign lands. Kind of a way to wash off the uncleanness of having been among the spiritually dead. Now, if he did these things, then everyone who was in the temple would be able to see that Paul was still an observant Jew and that he was encouraging others to be so as well. And to make sure that Paul realizes they're not changing anything about their position, that his work and teaching among the Gentiles is important, um, and that those Gentiles are not expected to live as Jews, they add this, uh, Acts 21, verse 25, As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, presuming that James was the speaker passing on these decrees, which is, I think, a safe assumption to make, especially because Luke names him as the uh, leader, um, it is possible that James is the speaker that this last part was not just to Paul, but also to people among the elders who maybe disagreed with Paul reaching out to the Gentiles. Remember, there was a pretty equal balance uh, at one point uh, between people who thought reaching out was a good idea and people who thought staying put was a good idea. This is just a reminder that the inclusiveness that um, Paul is advocating is part of being a follower of Jesus, even though it's not always comfortable. The things that the the uh, elders had forbidden were all parts of uh, pagan temple feasts and celebrations. Gentile believers were essentially instructed they had to keep their focus on God and, and on the teaching of Jesus, that we're supposed to love God by loving others. Dabbling in the worship of other gods is not only offensive to the Jewish faithful, but it is a poor witness if you're claiming allegiance to God through Christ, right? Yeah. So let's look at verse 26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. And that's all part of the ritual. You needed to declare when you were going to return to complete that purification week. And if you miss it, you probably needed to start over. And in Paul's case... He can only accompany the men to their vow and pay for their sacrifice if he has completed this ceremony. Otherwise, he would be considered unclean from his traveling in Gentile lands. So it's very important for him that he follow these steps as traditionally laid out. Paying for the sacrifice of someone else was considered a particularly pious act, right? So it's going to score big points politically and religiously among people who keep those kind of scores. Right. So, so far, so good, right? As we go forward in the next few verses, we're going to see the truth of the Spirit's warnings to Paul that he shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. For today, though, we're going to stop here because there is something really important illustrated by this section I want to make sure we all catch. Right? There are at least five distinct cultures in conflict in just these few verses. There are the Romans, of course. They are not directly mentioned in the short passage we just read. 
But the attitudes and actions here are all driven, at least in part, by the way that the empire has dominated and oppressed the people of Judea. They are a looming shadow over and behind every story in the New Testament. And we should always keep that in mind. Speaking of a presence we should never forget, in Jerusalem, the temple couldn't be ignored by anyone. It was a giant gleaming superstructure you could see from everywhere, and there was a religious presence attached with it, which was part of everything that ever happened in the city during this time. It represented so much about God and the people's relationship to God. The vows and the sacrifices, the idea of being near to God, these are all part of the culture of the temple, as it is... Uh, also part of the traditional Jewish faith. And we're going to call, we're going to call the whole Jewish faith, we'll call that one culture, even though it had a lot of subcultures and beliefs wrapped into it as well. It was the traditional culture which drove the beliefs and actions of everyone in Judea. Then there were the Christians. They still weren't calling themselves that at this point. They made up two distinct cultures of their own. There were the Jewish believers, many of whom thought it was best for them and often for everyone to follow Jesus by adhering to the law of Moses, even though the teachings of Jesus and the law of Moses often seemed to be in conflict. And then there were also the Gentile believers. The Gentile believers often knew nothing or close to nothing about the Jewish faith that they were entering. And, and by entering, I mean they're, they are becoming Jewish, at least somewhat, by their belief in the Jewish Savior and King who was sent by the Jewish God. All right, now that doesn't mean that they need to adhere. In fact, as Gentile believers, they were taught they didn't need to adhere to Jewish practices. So we have two distinct groups inside the Christian uh, culture. In fact, there's, there's one more in there, too, that I want to highlight. And that's the culture of the leaders among the followers of the way. Because we sometimes fit them into one of those two categories of Christian culture, saying, oh, well, James was a, more of a Jewish believer, and Paul, in spite of his Jewish history, he was more of a Gentile believer. But um, honestly, the leaders were a separate group. What they were doing, what they were trying to do, was actually a thing that was alien to all four of the other cultures. And they're not certain they're doing it right, even though they are certain that they should be doing it. They are working on a culture of unity. Everything each one of the leaders is shown to be doing in this passage, whether it's bringing an offering to help the least among the people group, or if it's teaching about the importance of inclusion and allowing diverse groups with diverse practices and diverse habits and diverse attitudes to stand side by side because of a single very important shared belief that Jesus is Lord, whatever it is, everything that they're doing is driving towards this idea that we are one people in Christ, regardless of our background, regardless of the practices we believe are most important, right? I'm using way too many words trying to express this one idea. This is it here. Look, they were too different to work together, but that's exactly what they were doing or what they were trying to do. Now, unity is not something we spend much time thinking about or working on these days. We tend to idealize the us and demonize the them instead of just saying, look, I may not agree with you on this thing, but we can still be one because Jesus said we can. Here in America, 
We are a nation with more than 30,000 different denominations, every one of which was created because the people of a church that is supposed to be one body of believers in Christ can't bring themselves to reach out and try to get along with someone who disagrees with them. There have been whole church splits over whether you say, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses in the Lord's Prayer. Should that ever matter? No, it shouldn't. And yet... It has. It does. We are to be known by our love for one another. That is literally the command of our God. We should love our neighbors, our enemies, and ourselves. If we are followers of the way of Jesus, we are supposed to make love the center of every action and every word that we share with another person. Or at least we're supposed to try I had my attention called to a social media post a few weeks ago, and since I saw it, it's just been like sitting in my head while I try to decide what it is I should be doing about it. And it it said this, there is not a non-Christian in this country that would say Christians are known by their love. And I wanted to just write it off, say, ah, well, what does that guy know? But as much as I'm sure I know Christians who are known by their love, a few anyway, Mostly, when you hear about Christians, you're hearing about judgmental, hateful, hate-filled, angry, afraid, self-righteous, arrogant people. Because God help us, we are. We don't see that from the leaders in this passage. They are doing all they can to be open to unity, to diversity, and to keeping everyone who wants to be a follower of the way together, demonstrating love together. And by doing that, they are changing the world. What are we doing? I want to change our congregation. I don't care if you're an online viewer or listener or if you show up in person every week. I want you to join me on a quest to reclaim our identity as people who believe that Jesus is Lord and that his command to love is the most important thing. Are you willing to try that? I'm even going to set a goal for each person who's willing to join me on this journey. You ready? Here's your goal. One act of love each week. It's not just your goal, it's my goal too. One act of love each week. And you can share it here or you can share it with me privately so I can share it anonymously. But I want to start making Christians known as people who try to love, who try to live in unity, who try to guard their words towards one another. So how about it? Are you with me? The the word amen means something on the order of make it so or I agree that this is how it should be or let's do it. All right. All I need from you right now is an amen. Don't say it just yet. Hang on. When you say this, this is your promise to try. And then what you need to do after you make that promise is go out and love. Love without reservation. Love without exception. Love without conditions. Just love. Now, can I get an amen? Grace and peace to you this week. Take a moment. Talk to God. Ask God to help you learn 
to be a witness to love. Wherever you are, whoever you are, wherever you think you've got yourself in life, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is there. There's nowhere you can go that God isn't. Go with God. Grace and peace again to each and every one of you all week long. See you next time.